Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Over a decade ago, I met a group of Shrinemont alumni camp counselors and their spouses in Lexington, Virginia for a wedding of one of our fellow camp counselors. One of the things I remember most about that weekend was a tour from our friend Charles of his alma mater, Virginia Military Institute. He could not have been more excited to tote his childhood friends around his old stomping grounds. We looked like overgrown clowns piling out of cars that seemed too small for our tall bodies. And almost as fast as we started volleying questions to Charles, he was off and reciting the certain history of buildings. The architecture was not impressive, but as austere as you might imagine, for a military institution with dorms named Old Barracks, Middle Barracks, and New Barracks, Charles had his cadet's ring on that day, the equivalent of a graduation ring from most other institutions, only much, much larger. And the ring identified Charles as an alum to all rats or first-year students. It was stunning to watch my intellectual, quiet friend, whom I had never witnessed in military mode, call a rat to interrogation as he was going about his business. We went about our tour, spending too much money at the bookshop, being too loud in the museum, and marveling at the strength of the wrestlers engaged in a match in a gym. And then Charles's eyes lit up as he turned to us and proclaimed, I've saved the best for last. His gait quickened as he expectantly led us to the corner of a small courtyard outside of the campus post office. We found ourselves in the newly dedicated Jonathan Daniels Courtyard. Now, Jonathan Daniels was a 1961 graduate of VMI, whose experience was probably more similar to that of my friend Charles than your average cadet. Upon graduating, Daniels wrote, the joy of learning sometimes seemed more harsh than pleasant. But admittedly, at the end of it all, he felt well prepared, though for what? He did not yet know. Daniels went on to enroll at Harvard Divinity School in pursuit of becoming an Episcopal priest. The fall of his Midler year at Harvard, the racial tensions in the southern United States had reached a climax. Great debate raged at the Divinity School over a proclamation from the Episcopal Bishop of Alabama who bluntly stated that he would not welcome any civil rights workers, particularly Episcopalians, into his diocese. His statement and authority were affirmed by the National Executive Council of the Episcopal Church. The student government at Harvard Divinity School issued a public condemnation of this church policy. Daniel spoke out against his classmates and the student government, confirming the bishop's right to exercise his authority. The conversation was escalated by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's call to all clergy to come to Alabama and march from Selma to Montgomery. Immediately, several of Daniels' classmates and professors accepted the call. Daniels, who weeks before had opposed the church's role in the civil rights movement, had no intention of traveling to Alabama. At evening prayer, however, the Magnificat had a special effect on him. 
As he wrote three months later, as usual, I was singing the Magnificat with the special love and reverence I have always had for Mary's glad song. As the lovely hymn of the God-bearer continued, I found myself particularly alert, suddenly straining towards the decisive, luminous, spirit-filled moment. Then it came. He hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and meek. He hath filled the hungry with good things. I knew then that I must go to Selma. Daniels went to Alabama and participated in the march along with other clergy and classmates. After the weekend was over, though, he realized the work had only just begun. He went back to school with one other classmate just long enough to obtain permission to spend the rest of the semester in Alabama. During the ensuing months, Daniels worked to integrate the Episcopal Church in Selma, tutored students, helped the poor apply for aid, and worked to register voters. In August of 1965, Daniels and a group of other activists went to picket stores that had not integrated in the small town of Fort Deposit, Alabama. The picketers were all thrown in jail and not released for several days. Once they were eventually released, Daniels, along with a white Catholic priest and two black protesters, went down the road to get a soft drink at one of the few local stores that would serve non-whites. They were met at the door by Tom Coleman, an engineer for the state highway department, an unpaid special deputy who was armed with a shotgun. Coleman threatened the group and pointed his gun at the 16-year-old Ruby Sales. Daniels pushed her to the ground and caught the full blast of the shot, dying immediately. As Daniels sat in the chapel months before his journey began, the very familiar words of the Magnificat were made real to him in a new way. His faith took a new shape, which led him to act with the courage and conviction of one who truly believes the words that he had been reciting for years. Mary's words, her experience, made real something that he once had thought was impossible. His faith took a new shape and was more than enough to provide sustenance for the journey that God had placed before him. My friend Charles, the graduate and tour guide at VMI, had a twin brother, Leonard, who was shot and killed by a sniper in Iraq in the summer of 2004. I watched as Charles held up his parents as they slowly fell apart. Charles' birthday was no longer a yearly celebration of his birth, but a day when the loss of his brother was lamented more vocally than the other 364 days of the year. While his father became more militaristic and harsh, and the sister-in-law he had gained fled from the family, Charles turned to his faith. Charles chose the more difficult path, he chose to grieve. He chose to honor his brother and allow his faith to shape the person that he has continued to become. It all made sense why Charles had saved the Jonathan Daniels courtyard for last. Daniels was about as contrarian as one can afford to be and still remain enrolled at VMI. Daniels chose to answer to a higher authority. Charles had followed in his footsteps. 
Charles made it through VMI with highest honors, but did not follow in the long line of military personnel in his family, nor did he lose his own resolve in the midst of those who were doing just that. What I've experienced over and over again in my dear friend Charles seems to me influenced by the life and example of Jonathan Daniels. Likewise, it is found in the gospel lesson from today. We have each been given more than we need, an abundance of riches, even in times that feel impoverished. What we choose to do with that abundance is purely up to us. To clarify, I do not mean to imply that in the days, months, or even years after Charles's brother's death that things were easy or clear. Likewise, I do not mean to imply that Daniel's journey was without suffering, doubt, or sacrifice. Obviously, he ultimately gave his life for his beliefs. One way to interpret today's parable from Matthew's gospel is to wonder about the talents you have been given and how you are putting them to use. Focusing on the scale of those talents matters only in a relative sense, meaning the slave with one talent was only poor in comparison to the slave with 10. Truthfully, a talent from Matthew's context is best translated to a billion dollars today. Much like wealth, deprivation is a relative state. Now, as you well know, there are many different ways in which we can examine a parable. There are any number of ethical, Christological, and metaphorical ways to unpack this apocalyptic message with weeping and gnashing of teeth. But this morning, I want to suggest that a perfectly valid way to receive this lesson is to examine how you feel in your gut after hearing it. The feeling that I am left with is quite simply that I, not, I do not want to be left with regret like the one whose fear dictated his actions. The parable motivates me to think differently about all I have been given, which Jesus seems to be implying is more than enough. A key to understanding this passage is Jesus' framework for the parable itself. The whole narrative is contained in the context of our relationship with God. And if we believe that God is enough and God has provided enough, our behaviors reflect our awareness of God's abundance. So I wonder... I wonder if this parable could be an invitation to spend more time examining how committed we are to our theology, not just in theory, but on a gut level. I'm comforted to be reminded that the path that unfolded before Jonathan Daniels and my friend Charles was incredibly unpredictable, not at all what they had planned for, but deeply, deeply faithful nonetheless. I wonder where we might end up if we truly believed all these things we proclaim on a gut level. Those first two slaves were rewarded not for the success of their investments, but their faithfulness. Living abundantly is a choice, but one that Jesus makes clear is available to us all. 
Amen.